Welcome to the Institute, a podcast in the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. In this episode, Clay speaks with Senior Associate Dean Rudy Colorado Mansfeld and Associate Professor of Geography Javier Arce Nazario. In their conversation, Colorado Mansfeld and Arce Nazario discuss their collaboration on the geovisualization of North Carolina mill towns. Funding for this project was made possible by the IAH's new faculty program. Javier, you're the recipient of the uh, new faculty program collaboration grant. And this is the first year that the Institute has done this. Can you talk a little bit about your research and how you came to collaborate with Senior Associate Dean for Social Sciences and Global Programs, Rudy Colorado Mansfeld? Thank you for the invitation. My previous work has looked at how landscape changes and um, how we can integrate different voices or different methods to understand these changes. Like um, for my dissertation, for instance, I worked particularly in the Peruvian Amazon. I was integrating uh, historical uh, air photographs as well as um, satellite images and uh, ethnographies to understand changes and how both scientists and the people that live in this uh, forest uh, or in these agricultural landscapes uh, interpret change. Um, the same thing I've been working particularly in Puerto Rico, uh, which again, but this way, uh, this, this time I've been working uh, with uh, the imagery and trying to bring these images to uh, exhibits as well as uh, open space fairs and um, showing people how Puerto Rico changed, but also asking people how they interpret change before and after they look at the images. So um, I was once uh, talking with Rudy about uh, this project and I showed him some of the uh, images and, um, and he, he got interested in, in, in this uh, method. Um, and also I had been as I started uh, living here a year and a half ago, I started thinking what would be some interesting theme to start working now that I live here in North Carolina. And um, I started identifying certain things that I thought it was important for people's identity, and one of the things is uh, mill towns, uh, which you can see is part not only of the landscape, but also is, is part of, is integral part of uh, how people uh, see uh, their towns and. Uh, and you can even see it in, um, in uh, uh, Children's Museum, how they even talk about the history of, of um, Milton. So I think it's, it's a very important part of, of North Carolina. And um, I wanted to see how then we can read these landscapes and what the meaning of you know, change in these landscapes mean to uh, this state as well as to the world. Because the story of mill towns and uh, particular textile mills is not only of the United States, but it's something that happens all around the world, and um, and Rudy has been working with this kind of things uh, before me. Rudy, could you talk a little bit about your research background? Yeah, so I'm a cultural anthropologist, and I, I have been working in the Ecuadorian Andes for about 26 years. My first projects were on uh, questions of economic change in in Valley, north of Quito, where the indigenous people had made a lot of money selling um, crafts to tourists, not only in Ecuador, but they had been very astute in traveling the world and going to where 
actually the tourists had come from and air shipping massive amounts of sweaters and bags and wall hangings around the world. And so it was very interesting to me to see this money coming back into the valley and empowering for the first time um, a modern urban indigenous community. And so I did work on that and then uh, from that, also had been working on um, the indigenous movement in Ecuador and Indian politics, and then there was a series of um, real economic crises that, that really uh, hurt that economy. And in watching them come back from those problems, I, I started to do a project that was in an old factory town that was about 10 kilometers up the Pan American Highway from this, from this indigenous market town. And both were trying to come back from the collapse of, of the uh, currency and the economy, but doing it in very different ways. And I got very interested in the way that this, this old factory town actually became the success story of apparel making. And as they prospered, they got very interested in turning their factory into a museum in honor of their, their grandparents, essentially, that generation. And it had been a really kind of um, traumatic history of the factory that closed in a series of strikes. And actually, there, there had been um, a, a killing of a manager from the factory. They were going through their own effort to come to terms with that past, as well as to celebrate their revival as a town. And they created this beautiful museum. And I was there at the beginning. They recruited a colleague of, of mine and me to do oral histories with the remaining factory workers. So we did that with the town. We were there as so they launched this museum. And then I came back about, well, I've been going back and forth. But after 10 years, I went back and toured the factory with the um, person who ran culture and tourism for the town. And they shared the problem that no one came to this museum. And I, at that point, and I had long wanted to do this, I thought that it'd be great if they could come to North Carolina because we have a lot of abandoned factories in North Carolina. And we have a lot of factories that are being put to new uses for a variety of ways. Everything from um, the American Tobacco District in, in Durham to uh, down in Star, North Carolina, there's a very interesting project of, of um, you know, almost an arts incubator, but um, it, it has uh, multiple um, businesses that are run out of an old factory down there. So uh, we were supported by the U.S. Embassy in Quito to bring a team from the uh, Ministry of Culture, from the town, um, and the ex-mayor of the town, and we toured Rocky Mount, North Carolina, Greensboro, Tarboro, North Carolina, Star, Saxpaha, here in Carborough. And then we went up to Massachusetts, to Lowell and to Lawrence. And it was fascinating to me, the conversations that, that these men from, from Ecuador could get into right away with somebody from Tarboro or Star. Very meaningful questions about what it means to bring a, an old factory town back and what the factory offers and what it offers as a challenge. So all of this was in my mind um, the moment I met Javier because I was coming off of that project and Javier was starting here uh, in his new position 
and he began to talk about this exhibition he had done to share the results of his work in Puerto Rico in a way that drew people into these conversations about change over time in a landscape. And that, I thought, was very powerful to be able to not just study a place, but to spark a conversation through your work. And he had this wonderful exhibition, which was very, I thought, simple and elegant of, of showing images of land use change over time. And I thought that could be a, you know, a model for expanding these conversations about these factors. Now, as senior associate dean, I have to ask, how do you fit in research and <laughs> and lead? As a cheerleader, <laughs> as a cheerleader, and uh, really, it is a privilege to be able to tag along and to look for opportunities for this work and to try to find uh, audiences for this work and then try to think about further ways it can tap these um, hemispheric possibilities. But I can do very little day-to-day on this project. That's where Javier and his teams come in. He's <laughs> <laughs> a really good cheerleader. <laughs> that's, that's, that's good. I want to ask how you came to your interests in your research? Like, what, what, what inspired you to look at <laughs> landscapes and to have them tell these stories? Since, since young, I've been very interested in landscapes. I mean, I, I, you know, I loved walking and, you know, and looking at different spaces, not even the forested ones, but agricultural and urban. I've been since young, I actually wanted to be a photographer when I was when I was young. Uh, so no, when when I was in in high school and in 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 college, I wanted to study photography. And and Ansel Adams, for instance, and the photography of of of, uh, of that school was very important for me. So I I was really into photography. Actually, I was not. I didn't know what geography was. Um, it was not until I went on an exchange program uh, to New York City that I took a course on remote sensing that. Um, that I decided to take it because, um, I don't know, I, I never heard about something that it was about analyzing images. So I said, well, let me take it. And, um, and I thought it was great because it could integrate both the um, artistic part of, you know, the images that I really enjoy looking and um, taking. I mean, in this case, satellites were taking it for me, right? But, um, but also the scientific aspect of uh, the work that I enjoy because I, I was studying biology. So I, I really liked uh, also the scientific aspect. So that's how I got into learning the beauty of uh, doing geography, uh, studying geography. So that's how I got into, into this kind of thing of, of looking at images. And um, so, but then when I started doing my dissertation, which again, I was integrating remote sensing, I mean, I, I, for me, it was very important to understand the, the, um, what was happening in the, in the ground, right? So not only look at the pixels, right, but look what is within those pixels. So I actually lived in the communities, and um, I lived uh, with farmers. So I thought that many of these images, which are really snapshots, and also at a scale that you cannot understand necessarily the details that are happening within, um, it needed uh, more um, context, and um, it could also give us some conversations. So that's how I got, you know, really enticed. And also at the moment that I was studying uh, uh, environmental research, 
uh, remote sensing was like the language of you know of, of discussion, right? It was the way to talk about changes and time and, and environmental change. It still is, but um, but I think it was important to to try to you know put them into what the remote sensing can tell us and what the um, local uh, knowledge can also tell us about change. And Rudy, your turn. How did how how did you get to the place where you were interested in? the indigenous cultures in, in around Ecuador? I had an interest in, well, in cultural change in, in, in a sense, and then also in the way that people um, could, you know, have some autonomy or independence in being able to establish the values that were important in their lives out in a consumer society. That really drove a lot of my early research was looking at how, in this case, in Ecuador, growing prosperity um, would either open paths for, for you know, the development of a community or end up restricting them towards a very narrow consumerist ideal. And uh, it was an open question as to which kinds of choices commit uh, families and communities in which sorts of ways. And it was a very interesting time to take up those questions because, again, th there was uh, growing wealth in the province that I was working in, which is rare. You know, you don't get that in many rural areas anywhere, actually, in the world. The, the history of um, our times is one of, of urbanization, the move to the cities, the decline of rural population. So to meet, uh, you know, people, families who... Um, had built something in place in, in um, you know, it wasn't exactly rural. In fact, it was in some ways urbanizing on a small scale, and it was connecting up um, through everything from electricity to bus routes to become um, much more um, part of national society. And yet they could still have many parts of um, their own traditions and values um, become part of what they were creating along with a, a Andean consumer world. So I was just interested in, in um, the, the other ways one could become a modern people besides the model of a, our consumer society. That's fascinating. I, uh, I have a question we ask everyone, which is, what is a book that changed your life? I really like magical realism. And so, I mean, there's several books of magical realism that I like. I mean, I, I think one that people can relate to, it's uh, 100 Years of Solitude. And um, so, again, there's so many, it's so difficult to select one. Um, and, um, and so many interesting short stories within that school. But it actually also relates to the way I, I think about work and, um, and how about the conversations of uh, space, right? Because it's, the, it's this idea that you can see something that you can construct it in, in multiple ways, and yet there's there's this idea that it's a, a very a subjective way that you can um, object, sorry, objective way that you can construct some space on some story. There will always be this valuable subjective way of constructing that it might be more um, alluring to the to the people that live in these places. 
let me explain to you like why how I see magical realism related to my to my work. So I see these images, for instance, um, which are these idle photographs or these satellite images. These sometimes represent, let's say, the positivistic way of looking at the, at space. Uh, we can measure things, but within those spaces, uh, we have people, right? And these people uh, live these uh, spaces and have ways to construct and to think about how changes have happened in these places. But they can also look at these images and then reconstruct new stories, right? So there's this conversation between the within the subjective and the objective, and uh, which creates some beautiful stories. And you know, hundred years of solitude is one of the best examples of. Of seeing that, you know, there's, there's things that you might think is not uh, real, but um, when you actually live live them, it actually it's the way that people um, relate to space and to their history. And for me, when living in the Amazon, I just started. Um, I mean, I'm from the Caribbean, so and and, and Gabriel Garcia Marquez from the Caribbean, so a lot of the stories relate to uh, my Puerto Rican reality. But it, it even made more sense when I lived in the Amazon. All right, so I'm going to dodge your question to begin with, <laughs> and then I'll come back to it because uh, the because part of the way I tell the story of of this factory in Ecuador is essentially to give it a magical realist bend, in which I talk about, and these, these are true facts about it, is that um, they, they came, two Spanish investors came to Ecuador and they wanted to build these enormous textile factories. And they picked a location on the side of a volcano that was a parish where mule trains came from the north of the country and then refreshed their mules to then go further down south to Quito. It was the middle of nowhere. And that, in fact, they, they brought um, old factory equipment from England on mules to this site to set up this factory. They had planned to bring the railroad through, and eventually it did come through. But they built this this. Um, enormous factory on the side of a volcano in the middle of nowhere. And Italian engineers came and dammed a nearby river to get the electricity. And a German engineer came to run the factory. And they bought cotton out of a warm valley to the north of where this factory was. And they made an enormous amount of money for a generation. And then they sold the factory. and. The next family really didn't put a penny into it. And the clothing that they, the, the fabric that they made became less and less fashionable. And day in and day out, men came and wove this fabric and it was thrown into the storehouses. They could not sell it. And men came and wove the fabric and they threw it into storehouses and they could not sell it. And then they stopped paying these men. And then finally they, they brought in a new Spanish manager who had to somehow make this all work. And then they became very angry with this man because he cheapened the cloth that they were making in an effort to reduce its cost. So already there was friction. And then finally they had to give up on the, fa the production side, the weaving side of it all together. They were going to keep making thread and let the workers go. And in that, there was this strike, and the strike went out of control, and they dragged this manager from the factory, and they killed him. And people in the town 
knew that things were going badly wrong. There was a woman who told me the story. She was 12 or 13 at the time, and the nun who was teaching her class came in and said, girls, get your head down on your desk and pray. They are killing up at the factory. And she left the school. She walked up the road, and she could see drops of blood on the cobblestones. I mean, the whole thing sets up like a Gabriel Marquez mm-hmm. <laughs> story. Yeah, yeah. So oh. it, there is something. Then the factory is mothballed. They, 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 they leave it. They, they step out. They lock it up. The Social Security Administration seizes it. They don't let anybody go in and out for 35 years. And there's dust accumulating on all the fabric and all the machines. There are, there's a black market trade of spare parts that strips loom after loom down to skeletons. But essentially, it's left the same as it always was. And there are two men who uh, do not get paid, but who guard the factory and keep everyone from going in and out with the expectation that when it gets sold, somebody is going to have to pay them back wages for 30 years of guarding this empty factory. And on and on, the layers of the stories of, of, of the relationship to this building are extraordinary. The, the, the stories people tell themselves about their parish, their family, their own careers, again and again, pick up parts of the stories of this factory. And that is why it was so interesting uh, at that moment of economic renaissance for the town that they really wanted to ensure the, the, the future of the factory as part of how they would tell the stories of the town. Although people were divided, some people felt like there should be bulldozers to come and knock it all down and just build affordable housing for people. You know, People don't agree on its importance, but they all have opinions on, on the factory. See, that was me not answering your question about a book. <laughs> I did notice that. <laughs> well, we look forward to seeing the work that comes out of this collaboration. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. What a great opportunity for us. Yes, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much. All right. That's it. That's a wrap. Thank you so much thank for coming down. Check back at ih.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.